author's intent, it is impossible to create a parody of extreme views such that it cannot be mistaken by some readers for a sincere expression of the views being given. Get started. Birds don't exist. Golden retrievers wear sunglasses. <laughs> Quan Pesadas. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to episode three of Postal Podcast. Everybody. <laughs> We've got something yes. special for you guys today. <laughs> uh, yes, we've, we been, we've been reading a selection of the works of Juan Pesadas, real name mm. Homero Cristali, a 20th century Argentine Trotskyite who... Among other things, was a believer in the necessity of nuclear war and the ability to talk to dolphins, as well as the fact that there either could be or are, depending on when he was writing, there could be or are communist aliens who are observing us, who will take us to the next mm. level of historical development. Did you enjoy yourself, Levi? Oh, yes. I, I particularly enjoyed the um, his strong advocacy for the use of child soldiers for... <laughs> <laughs> Pro- were promoting few... the, the progress of history. <laughs> <laughs> there were a few worrying comments about Vietnamese child soldiers. <laughs> yeah, and Uganda and stuff. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. The um the child soldiers in Dofar were really, really inspiring for him, at least from his writings. <laughs> really <together>. inspiring. <laughs> they were, I've, I've got some really good quotes about his his love of child soldiers. Before going in, when I told you about Juan Posadas, did you think that this guy was serious? What was the what was the chance that you thought this guy was trolling? All right, I gotta get I gotta be honest here, man. Like you take one look at a picture of this guy and you just get like the creep you just get the creeps, man. <laughs> it looks like he looks like the sort of person who would start a sex cult. <laughs> so, well, I mean, um, <laughs> he went he went part of the way there. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're, we're picking people who are like pretty obviously sincere about them. Yeah, yeah. I think we've really we've already fucked up the <laughs> we've already fucked up the guiding yeah, mission of Pose Law. If okay, if I just had to read, if I didn't know about his background, um, I I would probably have thought he was just like. Um, had sort of like psychiatric disorder (laughs) Um, and therefore probably not a troll. Um, But, yes, as I know a little bit more about his biography now and about who he is, I'm pretty sure he's very, very serious. Yeah, the guy guy was sincere. This is an open case possibility of being a troll, yeah. Yeah. Is it a troll test that's going to be... I'm exactly the same. Like our, our is it a troll test is getting more and more perfunctory. We just keep picking people who are clearly <laughs> sincere. I mean, we did the Unabomber. That guy clearly believed what he was talking about. Persadus. Well, there's Varg. We've got Varg coming up. I'm pretty sure Varg <laughs> believes what he talks about. <laughs> anyway, let's not get sidetracked and talk about Varg. Yeah, let's yeah, talk yeah. about Juan. Uh, okay, cool. So the guy who is not a troll was born Omero Cristali in Argentina in 1912 to Italian immigrant parents. He grew up in Buenos Aires really poor with I think like yeah. eight or nine siblings. Uh, <laughs> so so when, when it comes to 
talking about the working class, unlike a lot of communists, this guy was not laughing. He truly understood what it meant to do a shitload of manual labour for next to no pay, live in horrible cramped conditions. He, he's yeah, the real professional deal. experience he's, he's included be- begging, begging on the streets and mm-hmm. um, shining shoes. <laughs> and <laughs> and playing professional <laughs> soccer. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I thought that yeah, was he, cool. Yeah, so... Uh, he should have just stuck with the soccer. Multi-talented. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so during during his life, he got more and more interested in the working class movements of Latin America, particularly the Trotskyist movements. He actually became a reasonably prominent Trotskyite in Latin America during his life. However, his his influence outside of Latin America was pretty limited. I mean, his the extent of his agitation in, say, Europe. He lived in Italy in the last part of his life, was really handing out leaflets at workers' rallies that other people organised. But in Latin America, he would organise strikes and things like that. So, again, he wasn't like a campus Marxist. He was, he came from a very poor background and and took part in in labour movements. Yep. And he was quite a good, well, I, I don't know what the standard for good is, but, like, he he was a successful, like, labour organiser. Yeah. And he, he was, as- to some degree, self-educated as well because he does. I know, I guess it depends whether or not he actually read the things that he references, but, you know, taking him, you know, on good faith, he did actually, like, he... If, for somebody who didn't like uh, receive like a good formal education, like he, I suppose he was fairly well read, all things considered. He read a shitload of Trotsky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it will, this will be a recurring theme. His comrades never considered him much of a theoretician. He was mm. noted by many to be unusually enthusiastic when it came to Trotter's. But was never never really seen to be a particularly deep thinker when it when it comes to yeah. Marxism. And in, in in the readings we did, that did become apparent. Yes. Another an, another thing that will that I found quite funny. So I also read. To, to give myself a bit of background, a book called I Want to Believe, Pesadism, UFOs and Apocalypse Communism by A.M. Gitlitz, which is about uh, about Pesadas. Link in the description. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By, uh, use use our Amazon affiliate link. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> if you're so inclined <laughs> to, to read about Juan Pesadas. <laughs> yeah, no. Engage in the capitalist I, system. Give us your money. <laughs> I, I want to believe it's a good book. I enjoyed it. About probably 80% of it is descriptions of communist infighting, which is not not hugely interesting and it's communist specialty to hate each other more than you hate the capitalists but the <laughs> the descriptions it gives of Pesadas's life are good um and it, it does go into some of the 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 wackier parts of his life like when he was towards the end of his life chased out of Argentina by the government lived in Rome 
in a villa where he he collected a group of adherents and effectively formed a, a cult, which it's there there are a number of Trotskyists who have gone in this direction where you get this cult-like figure <laughs> that makes all of the men around him, and it's almost always him, uh, engage in, in soul-destroying self-criticism sessions while having sex with all the women. But he, his works all have a very particular prose style. It's very stream of consciousness, not terribly structured. And this is because he... He didn't really write much. Instead, he just set up a tape recorder and held court and then got someone to transcribe it, which is why everything everything in our reading list read like some guy just rambling at you because that is actually what it was. That, that is an accurate <laughs> representation of what, of what this content is. Yeah, and he, he makes kind of like broad Pro, like proclamations and like <clears throat> very forceful language at times. <laughs> um, very forceful language. That's very definitely forceful you topics. can see it as a speech. Yes, but all in Spanish as well. So it's all also been translated into English. Yeah, translated into multiple languages. Um, yeah. After his death, he died in eighty one. He didn't leave behind a huge movement. No. I mean, Trotskyism in the context of Marxism is more marginal than, say, Leninism or Stalinism, which controlled the Soviet Union. And Juan Posadas was marginal within a marginal branch of Marxism. There is still, there, there, there is still the organisation, it's called Scientific, Cultural and Political Editions, they publish some of Posadas' works, and that's where we got a lot of the material for our readings. You can download free PDFs. And do you think they're they're publishing that stuff as like, like here's an interesting historical part of like Trotskyism or something? Or do you think like they actually endorse his point of view? I th- I think look, there are. There are so many humans <laughs> alive at the moment that I'm sure there's someone who is a true <laughs> believer. But maybe like, maybe this is why was on the is it a troll comes in. Because the Poseidus himself, no, definitely not a troll. When you read about <laughs> Poseidism online, that is yeah, yeah. that's much murkier. Mm, you get the impression yeah. that a lot of people talk about him jokingly. And among those people, maybe you'll have someone who truly thinks that, yep, we need global nuclear annihilation for socialism to rise from the ashes of the capitalist world. <laughs> Is that a troll? Pose law. Hard to say. <laughs> much, much more ambiguous than, than we, we need to like see if we can find some, himself. We need to see if we can find some like neo pesadism <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure it exists. I'm sure it exists. It's the internet. <laughs> There'll be someone. Okay. Right. So, so that's um most of Juan's life. Is there anything else other than Oh, there'll be a shitload, except I can't remember it. So how um, about how about uh, education? Else? What was happening in Latin America during his lifetime? That's important. Because Latin America basically like had a whole bunch of communist movements, essentially. 
mm-hmm. in various forms. But probably like one of the most important things for historical like framing <clears throat> was that like <laughs> for those who don't know, like Trotsky actually like um, fled the Soviet Union to um, Mexico. And like that's why a lot of Trotskyists came out of <laughs> Central and South America because <laughs> that's where he was, um, still doing his things and basically just like you know talking shit about <laughs> about Stalin <laughs> for, for like the remainder of his years before he got pickaxed. So yeah, anyway, yeah that's yeah. what was happening in South America. Yeah, it's sort of not even a thirty thousand foot view, but a view from Proxima Centauri of the events of Latin America in the 20th century. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff happened. <laughs> yeah. How about we go over the difference between Marxism, Leninism, Trotskyism and Stalinism before we get into uh, Poseidus's actual work because that that will provide some needed context and might make some of some of his views more clear. Yeah. So the intellectual tradition preceding um, Poseidus is roughly at a very high level. Hegel, um, and then who developed this thing called dialectic, called the dialectic. Um, and obviously there were people before Hegel, but we'll start like Hegel and then obviously Marx and Engels who developed um, like Marxism and communism um, and the labour theory of value. Um, and then Lenin uh, and then Trotsky, who was kind of like the next evolution, and then Poseidism. So as Jack said earlier, um, like Poseidus was a fringe group of a fringe group within a subsection of Marxism. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty small, pretty, pretty, pretty fringe. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But it was Marx and Engels said, re- relevant to what we're going to be discussing today is that history progresses in stages and each is animated by their, their own internal logic. Mm. And that in, that internal logic drives them inexorably towards a series of conflicts and transformations. So you, know, you had feudalism in medieval Europe. Eventually that became capitalism. And with capitalism you get the rise of the working class and capitalism is shit according to Marx, it's necessary to get to communism because there is this series of historical stages, but it's shit. And under capitalism, the working class who are exploited and they give their labour and the capitalists, people who employ them, people who own the means of production, generate profit using their labour that the working class don't see. Well, they don't see as much of it as they contribute. And eventually they're going to rise up and have a revolution. They will seize the means of production, the means with which you make, uh, with, with which you create uh, value. Yeah. And that's that's socialism. And under socialism, things are going to be so, so efficient that you're going to get hyperabundance eventually. Eventually you're going to get to communism. You're going to have so much stuff. Things are going to be so good. 
that you're not going to need the state, you're not going to need employment. It's going to be a classless Mm -hmm. utopia. The proletariat will not exist. The The proletariat will actually like create the society that Mm -hmm. doesn't even have a proletariat. There's like no no class. That's the sort of end of history, so to speak. It's going to be sick. And as can be heard, we're both probably the world's two foremost experts on Marxism. Yeah, we clearly know what we're talking about. We're clearly really good at this extremely deep study of this stuff. So just before we move on, there there is one really, and this sort of only only clicked for me um, when I I, like sort of understood the Marxist reasoning a little bit better when I understood a little bit of Hegel. So I'll just give like a quick (laughs) <laughs> like extremely shallow I've tried, introduction. I've tried to, reading to, the phenomenology of spirit a few times and have been completely defeated. So I don't want to. I don't want to so, discuss Hegel. You can do it at all. No, you you do it. What? Okay. There's this one core concept. Um, well, there's a couple of core concepts, but I'll touch on two of them. Uh, the first one is like what's called the dialectic, which is essentially like this mode of reasoning where you have like. Uh, three parts to say a discussion um you have what's called the thesis um which is like the initial conditions or you know your statement about the world then you have your antithesis um which you consider as like a negation or a refutation or um an alternative point of view and then you have your synthesis which is like what's the result of like blending the thesis and the antithesis um, and there's there's actually lots of variations on this, like uh, like Marx and Engels actually sort of took the Hegelian dialectic and modified it, and that's what they used to come up with um, what they call like materialism, um, which is basically this idea that um, sort of the causal factor of history is the like the physical, the actual materialistic components so like the the modes of production um and so that's how they they come up you know like with the idea of okay well it's the modes of production that are actually causing the social structures to change um so when they what's interesting is what they're using to like justify like or the bourgeoisie and the proletariat like they come into collision with one another and um like justifying the revolution is like the the current social capitalist structure is the thesis and the negation of that the antithesis is the revolution and the synthesis of that is the is like the coming socialist utopia and communist utopia um now please nobody ever ever quote me on my analysis of that i probably <laughs> i probably got that incredibly wrong um but as far as i could glean that's roughly <laughs> the reasoning that they're using to like come up with the like this idea that uh history has like a direction and you can analyze okay where is this going and how can we justify um you know the say like the proletariat uprising yeah, yeah. Thanks. How, how much did I butcher that? <laughs> it sounded good to me for what it's worth. <laughs> that, that's probably more of an indictment than an endorsement. How that's about, no I fucking way, man. I just, I just remembered this, and this is this is important. <laughs> we should, let's discuss the difference between Marxism and Leninism because that 
Okay, you take this one. That's I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> sure on this one. Uh, so Vladimir Lenin, uh, leader of the Bolshevik Party, was the party that launched effectively a coup against the Constituent Assembly, which led the Russian Revolution, um, and formed you know what we then or what we now think of as the USSR. He developed slightly a slightly different view of Marxism, which which fit the circumstances of Russia at at the time in in 1917. So Marx and Engels said that, like Hegel, you've got this 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 series of stages of history, one of which is capitalism, and you need capitalism in order to develop industry, to develop the working class who will then lead history to to the next stage to to socialism russia at that time wasn't particularly industrialized didn't really have an industrial working class so as say germany still agreed or england did yeah it was pretty rural yeah so lenin just fucking retconned marxism and said nah you don't need to progress what you need is a small group of intellectuals, the so-called vanguard of the proletariat, <laughs> who can take power. Of course, which he, of which he was a part. <laughs> that, that is a coincidental detail that he was the one to benefit. <laughs> and so they can lead the peasantry to communism. Mm. That's that's an incredibly simplified <laughs> description of Lenin. Lenin. The enlightened few will lead the proletariat. The, the enlightened with their with their like I don't know Bachelor of Arts from I don't know whatever awesome Russian universities there are is like okay we're gonna like lead the enlightenment of the proletariat. Yeah. Yes. So then Lenin died. I think it was nineteen twenty four, but. Go and have a crack. Commit, commit, (laughs) commit. Uncommitted, 1924. (laughs) And Stalin, Stalin and Trotsky were two prominent Bolsheviks who were then vying for power after Lenin had died. Stalin ended up winning. Trotsky was exiled from from the Soviet Union. Went to Mexico. Got assassinated. And while you know, while he was still unassassinated and in Mexico, he pretty much just complained about Stalin. That everything that Stalin did, he just um, yeah, he just spent like years and years and years just talking shit about Stalin. Years just complaining about him. A lot of the time, he never actually disagreed with what Stalin's aims were. He just yeah. disagreed. I think he just fundamentally disagreed that it was Stalin doing it and not and not Leon Trotsky. Sorry, can I, can go, I go interject on. quickly? It's a really uh, important point to understand why, like, somebody like Pesaitis can come up within Marxism as a as a kind of um, philosophical tra- tradition. <laughs> Is that, like, uh, they often do agree on the the ends that they're aiming at which is like the communist utopia um uh but yeah it's always tends to often be the means by which one gets there and that tends to stem from like how you interpret history and the Mm -hmm. progress of history and and all that sort of stuff sorry go on yeah i think probably the the one of the big the most relevant differences between trotskyism and stalinism that is going to come up a ton and that Posadas brings up regularly is that 
Stalin ended up going with this policy called socialism in one country where he said, okay, we're just going to focus on the Soviet Union (laughs) and we'll make sure we're socialist, but we won't advocate for world revolution. Instead, they just invaded everyone around them and made them socialist. So yeah, that yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a different way of, of of spreading the revolution. Whereas Trotsky said, no, there needs to be global revolution. Yeah, and simultaneous world revolution. Yeah, just everywhere. Just anywhere yeah, part where of the reason imperialism, it's cool. His, historically, like part of the reason why <clears throat> the Soviet Union and Stalin took that perspective is because around the same time in the early 20th century, is it was it the early 20th century? Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but like there were these other uprisings and like, France and like other European countries um, that failed Um, and so it looked as though you could have had like a simultaneous socialist uprising like across Europe Um, however when like many of the others failed um, and either succumbed to like you know uh, like I suppose like democracy or like in many cases Nazism um, uh, like uh, that idea of world revolution at least became, in the short term, impractical, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> okay. How about we get to the meat of it? Let's discuss. No, there is one more idea. Juan Pesetas thought still. Apo- apocalyptic. What else have we forgotten? Apocalyptic. That's 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 the defining Fucking feature. Fucking Juan Pesetas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's everything we're going to be talking about. Well, okay, so as a, as a very... Brief heads up. This is actually called like this. Is, you know, if you look online, it's actually called apocalyptic communism. Crusaders <laughs> <laughs> is one of them. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So let's keep it going. All right. So we had a reading list, and there was there was a fair bit. So for context, the things that we read and that we'll be discussing are. Flying Sources, The Process of Matter and Energy, Science and Socialism from 1968, The World Revolutionary Process and the Course of the Partial Regeneration in the Workers' States, which was from 1975, On the Function of the Joke and Irony in History from 76, Childbearing in Space, The Confidence of Humanity in Socialism, 1978. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, we, um, yeah, and the, the, we can we can put up some co- some supplementary reading lists on our yeah. website. <laughs> so we'll have, I guess we'll on the post we'll post on on the website and like in the YouTube um, description or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. Like the sources, the the specific text that we talk about here, but there's there's a, there's a whole bunch of other ones. There is a lot for of, those for those of the writings. So where do you want to start? Oh shit, where? Do you start with a guy like this? So Persaitis wasn't the most ordered thinker. I would say the world revolutionary process. Yeah, yeah. Let's start with... So we'll start off with his least zany and most mind-numbingly boring text, which I would actively, like, advise people not to read. However, if you're so inclined, it's called the World Revolutionary Process. Um, so the World Revolutionary Process and the Course of Partial Regeneration in the Workers' States. Yes. Yeah, this, this, this was his 
his speech opening the 10th World Congress of the Pesadist Fourth International in July 1975. So this, the first part of the text is the speech that he gave to open the international. And then the next bit is the speech at the end. There's no real difference in content between the two because at by 1975, he was a borderline cult leader and the people at the international <laughs> were cult members. And the, the first half is him saying, let's discuss these particular things and see if we will reach these conclusions. The speech he gave at the end of the international was, oh, wow, we reached the exact same conclusions that I proposed in the opening speech. So then... <laughs> Well, you know, like sometimes, sometimes you're just you're just right, you know. <laughs> yeah, but he he has science and Marx's on his side, and he perfectly foresaw the future and history with so, a capital H, capital H history. So it's very it's very distorted. It's very <clears> distorted. I found it very hard. I found it very difficult to like make sense of it. Yeah, so there's about half of it. I think is probably not really worth discussing because it's him just complaining about other communists. And yeah. the criticism, the criticism ultimately oil always boils down to the fact that they're not Poseidists. <laughs> like that, they're not Poseidists. They're not confident enough when it comes to trusting the scientific dialectical analysis of history. Yes. Um, and yeah, that, that, that's about it. Basically, they're leading. Communists and they're not Juan Posadas is his criticism yeah. of yeah. every communist who is not Juan Posadas who is more important than he is. Yes. So that's like half of the text gone. So th th this text is so disordered, very discursive. He repeats himself ad nauseum. I felt physically ill at times. That we're, we're just going to read through our notes and mm. when we come across something funny, we're, we're going to bring it up and discuss it. And like, one of the first things that got my attention was his, his admiration for child soldiers. Not only are child soldiers necessary for revolution, but they're good. You, you want child soldiers. And he, <laughs> he's got this quote on, um, on page six where he, he's talking about so this, this is in the context of him complaining about other communist parties not knowing what they're doing, not, yes. not seeing the way like the Pesadists do. So he's talking about communist parties ignoring the contribution of children in Vietnam and Dauphin. And he says of these children that they're 12 and hold a gun bigger than themselves, bigger in the form that is, but smaller in reality because it is the children who command the gun keeping it trained on the goal of social improvement. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't that and make you want to give then... a seven-year-old a Kalashnikov? <laughs> and then, like, I think, like, on the same page a little bit later, he says, in, in Defar, the children are at one with their guns. They participate in every debate and deliberation. <laughs> Far from being a hindrance, <laughs> they are one of the factors of progress. Oh, so he, he didn't, so it, sinister. <laughs> he, he didn't, it wasn't just like he was permitting 
he wasn't just like, oh, well, this is an acceptable part of, you know, it's, mm. it, you know, you have to break a few eggs to bring about the communist utopia. Like he was like, no, no. They, this is, they are one of the factors of the progress. This is an enormative <laughs> statement. It's you want child soldiers. They, are, so, they know what yeah. they're doing. So we got six, we got six pages into this PDF and we're already hit with Vietnamese child soldiers are sick. So Unfortunately, it got just, way more boring after that. <laughs> so it's what I find interesting about those quotes is that, like, he's speaking with admiration of all these children <laughs> with fucking guns. I like, like, I really like, like, like how the most horrible too. thing. In, yeah, how, how he was saying, you know, they they carry they're carrying around this their guns and participate in all debates as if <laughs> carry like. Having an assault rifle is a necessary condition for having a debate. They would not be participating fully if they weren't heavily armed. Which you rock up to a council what's... meeting with a with an AK forty seven. Sorry, we're just, <laughs> we're just participating. We're, we're yeah. here to have a peaceful conversation about the Soviet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, what are your thoughts on child soldiers, Jack? Oh. Well, Mostly, I'd say 95% in line with Juan Posadas. <laughs> I think he doesn't go far enough. The five, yeah, well, except the 5% is that he doesn't go far enough. So <laughs> he, 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 he then goes on to talk about how capitalism is doomed and how humanity just fundamentally wants to end capitalism. Yes. And that capitalism is preparing a nuclear war. He brings this up really early. This is one of his, his greatest hits, the, the, the coming nuclear war. And so, first of all, you know, I'll just explain what, what the nuclear war is about. He basically says that capitalism, capitalism is, is so in trouble and understands this at a deep level that it is preparing a nuclear war. It's... It knows it's going to lose, and so rather than gracefully accepting defeat, it's just going to glass the surface of planet Earth, just, just a nuclear wasteland. But, and this is a sign of capitalism's weakness, it hasn't launched it yet because its people oppose nuclear war, which I found interesting that it's a sign of the weakness of the system that the people who live under the system don't want nuclear annihilation. I would have considered that a fairly rational no. attribute on behalf of, <laughs> of any population, really, being opposed <laughs> to the nuclear apocalypse. But he he says capitalism is definitely going to launch this war. That is unavoidable. But capitalism is too weak to survive the war. So you, you wipe out almost all of humanity. Capitalism's gone. Socialism is so strong that socialism will rise from the ashes of the capitalist world and then you will get the utopia. So that leads to this interesting relationship with the nuclear holocaust on behalf of, of Juan Posadas where on one hand he, and I'm not sure how much of this represents a, an internal struggle on his part and how much represents him just not being particularly disciplined with his thinking or coming to any firm conclusion or just changing what he believes based on how he feels at the time of day, what he had for 
for his last meal, how sometimes he says this war is terrible, it's going to kill so many people, I don't want it, but it's we must prepare for it because it's necessary. This is a grim reality. Whereas sometimes, sometimes he's a bit more pro-nuclear war and he says, well, it's going to be bad, but at least we're going to get communism out of it. And then sometimes he's just 100% on the nuclear war bandwagon, says oh, this is going to be so good, we really need to do this, encouraging at times the Chinese Communist Party, at times uh, the Bolshevik Party in the USSR to launch nukes at the US just, just to kick things off, just to get things going more quickly. So I've got a good quote <laughs> yeah. for the nuclear yeah. one. Uh, because he has this... I mean, again, with this idea of, like, history having, like, some sense of progress in stages, like, it's incumbent upon the proletariat and people like Juan to help, like, history progress. Um, and so, like, capitalism is an obstacle. He refers to it as, like, an obstacle to, like, the progress of history. Um and so, so nuclear war is is like an agent by which we can remove that obstacle. So um, <laughs> reasoning and persuasion do not exclude the use of force. We propose the preventative war, <laughs> atomic event against <laughs> against imperialism. War. <laughs> this is just like, make a war so yeah. big that there aren't going to be any small wars. It is the same as when some rock obstructs the way. The rock must be cast aside. The rock being capitalism, obviously. Yeah, I remember this quote. This is such a good one. We we pose war with the say with the sentiment of doing something necessary in history, and not for the sake of one group or the other, but for humanity's like, <laughs> like the, the level of incoherence. We're going to have a preventative nuclear war for, for the sake of humanity. <laughs> But that, that's like saying as a doctor you're going to preventatively treat someone for every disease by shooting them in the head. It's like, yeah, they're dead. They're not going to get sick now. It's a, and in the same way, like, we're going to have a preventative nuclear war. We're going to stop any other wars, but we're going to nuke the fucking planet so they're not going to be any people to have for, wars. For the sake of humanity. For your sake, <laughs> to your patient, for your sake, to prevent any illness whatsoever, we will, I'm going to decap- we're going to have to blow your brains out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yep. so that's um, um, so he's the saddest medicine. That's a banger. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? We, where did you come down on Poseidus's thoughts of nuclear war? About did, did you feel he wanted the war or he was dreading? Well, it? again, I just don't think he went what? far enough. <laughs> <laughs> Like, is there something more more hectic than nuclear war? <laughs> if there is, we should do that. Yeah, it's uh, and nuclear war is definitely up there. Definitely top top ten most hectic things you can do. So, this text was it it, it was pretty boring. Like, uh, it's a weird experience reading to say this Pretty because boring. you're <laughs> you're super bored most of the time, but every now and then he'll come up with something about nuking the world or water birth and talking to dolphins. But 
he he repeats himself when it comes to the really weird stuff so often that those start getting really boring too. Like you you actually find yourself getting bored when he keeps talking about nuclear war. Yeah, he's very repetitive. What about um so yeah. can you know what would be an interesting question whilst we're on that note about <laughs> the um, his style, I suppose. <laughs> would you say this like the world because the other ones were short enough the other texts that were, we've got some interesting texts the other ones um is that they were fairly short texts right um but the world revolutionary process is like quite a grind um yeah, it's like would, 90 pages. <laughs> would you rather take into account like i suppose number of pages which <laughs> would you rather reread bronze age mindset or <laughs> reread the world revolutionary process. And let's scale Bronze it up. Like maybe <laughs> no qualification. I would rather read Bronze Age mindset again. Yeah, me too. It was just it was just <laughs> it was so boring. It was it's just boring. That's it's boring and incoherent, which is a strange combination to read. He makes voluntary nuclear holocaust boring. <laughs> that's, that's actually quite an achievement. <laughs> Could you and imagine how long that speech was? List like so, there was oh, some group. Man, I don't know fuck. how many how many fucking people were sitting there like listening to this guy, but so, some group of people sat down and listened to this guy for like I don't know how long it would have taken for this guy to give this speech. This was at least like a forty-five-minute speech or something, at least. Like, oh, and, and, and the rest. No, it was getting way more. <laughs> it was really yeah. ninety pages. Well, well, <laughs> so they just listened to this guy ramble on incoherently about nuclear war and child soldiers for however long. Yeah, the problem Keep is the mind. problem is most of most of what he talked about wasn't child war, uh, child war mm. wasn't nuclear war and child soldiers. It was things like, so he, he's got this bit here that I just flicked to in my notes where he was talking about Stalin taking over the Bolshevik party and how this, how this came to happen and how a discussion needs to be had to, to settle a question of how Stalin came to power. A lot of what he does in this, this speech is just tell people that they need to discuss stuff he talks about how how we need to have a discussion about something, tells you the conclusion that you should come to when you discuss it, and then tells you again that you need to discuss it. And he was talking about, he, he basically says Stalin came to power because the Bolshevik leadership was overawed by the power of world revolution and stepped back and focused on local concerns. A lot of them got killed in the civil war and the Bolshevik party let in too many people. It should have remained smaller and more disciplined, but instead they let in a lot of bureaucrats who didn't believe as strongly in Marxism and in science. Uh, and then Stalin came to power through that. But that, that It's a boring point. I bring it up because he just keeps talking about this. <laughs> there are probably at least five occasions where he says exactly the same thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the insults differ. Do you notice yeah. that a really common insult is that he he calls someone empirical and a 
a, a strong compliment is when he calls someone either objective or scientific. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I had a note about that. Yeah, he... He also never... Because, again, this is against the backdrop of, like, the philosophy that we explained earlier, which I'm not sure how well-versed Persaitis was in it. Um, probably more than us, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, these positions about, okay, empiricism, as in, like, you know, like deriving knowledge from sense data, essentially. Um, like, like, apparently that's a really bad thing. I don't know. Yeah. Wait, it, it, it's more how he, he never de- he never defines what science is, but clearly he really likes it. That science equals good in the mind of yes. Pine Pesatus. Well, yeah, except, except like... Exci- well, science... The, the, the thing is, like, and we can discuss this with some of his later points, but I guess one of the interesting points to note is that, like, everything, and I don't know if this is a, a Marxist thing in general or if this is a particularly, like, Trotsky thing. I have a feeling it's more deeply rooted in Marxism. If I actually knew what I was talking about, I'd be able to tell you <laughs> more clearly. Our, but our role is not <laughs> to be deep thinkers. Our role is to be the only people willing to read <laughs> it's a bronze age extremely low bar. Look, okay, let's be clear. Mas- if you're listening to this podcast right now, you are you are not here for educational purposes. Let's be one hundred percent clear. There is no accreditation, and we we're not even offering any guarantee that you'll be a more, a more worldly or wise person by the end of this podcast. We're <laughs> anthropologists, Levi. Don't, don't sell yourself short. Anyway, what were you we talking about? You were saying something um, about Marxism before I butted in. Oh yeah! Uh, oh yeah! This idea of like, uh, like social relations and like how like uh, a social relation can be like a power-based relationship, like in in the construction of Marxism, like the a capitalist uh, who owns the means of production exploiting the worker, that's like a power-based relationship. Um, and these social relations, what they call or what Mercedes calls social relations, are like or organisms. The, sh- the shaping, they are the things that like shape um, uh, whatever the human pursuit is. So uh, the, the social relation of capitalism and private property um, like distorts science that's conducted in capitalist countries. So it's like there's a degree to which science can operate that he sort of talks about within capitalism, but it's like it'll never really fully achieve yeah. like full capability of science because it's perverted by um, the private property, um, by private property um, and the incentive structures in capitalism, where it's like <laughs> under the socialist utopia where everybody is motivated purely by, like, the greater good and trying to, like, you know, achieve the highest dignity for humanity or whatever um like science will attain the kind of like perfection <laughs> because the people pra- like doing doing the science will be motivated not by ownership of private property but by these ascendant uh like human drives for bettering humanity yeah and that's the stage at which we'll learn to fully harness all of the energy around us and we'll be able to, instead of sexually reproduce, because he, he was quite a prude, apparently. Wait, what? Like he, really? Yeah, yeah. Apparently he he was very prudish. He really didn't like Did what he, he regarded as, cult, as... Yeah, it's cool when he does it. Uh, but he didn't <laughs> like sexual licentiousness. 
he didn't like that the um that say you know, gay people lesbians were associated with communist parties he 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 yeah. didn't want anything to do with them that wasn't cool um and so a one one positive outcome of this socialist science would be that we would develop our control of, of matter and energy to the point where humans would be able to reproduce asexually. Like we would just divide, and like reproduce like, like amoeba. He literally like says e. coli. We, yeah. we, we already <laughs> see that asexual reproduction, such as amoeba, is possible. <laughs> humans just... <laughs> and 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 travel faster than the speed of light so that we can form yeah. interstellar travel. <laughs> faster than light travel as as humans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I, I guess you would travel between stars and split into like exponentially greater numbers of little Levi's. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of anything. The spaceship worse. door is open and this stampede of tiny little like Levi's that you could fit in the palm of your hand just run out. Spread I can imagine it's like that scene from um from uh Fantasia <laughs> with Mickey Mouse with all the little axes. <laughs> little communist Levi's running in through uh, all around Alpha Centauri. <laughs> Distributing guns to all of the children. <laughs> distributing guns to the children of the galaxy <laughs> and incinerating planets with with necessary preventative yeah. water preventative <laughs> nuclear bombardments you can't even have a war on this planet we will prevent all wars on this planet <laughs> so, anyway, anyway what else okay we've got some interesting things uh Oh, um, oh, one interesting point. I don't know. <laughs> We're talking a lot of shit right now. <laughs> okay, so just to ground it a little bit back in a slightly more serious direction, um, what I found very interesting, which kind of like blew my mind when it clicked, and I don't, again, I can't say whether or not this is um, something... Uh, across all Marxism. I think if we do a future Marxist episode, I'm going to put more effort into understanding the underlying Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, uh, he's got this sense, and it only clicked for me after reading a bit more, like, of the history and stuff and the philosophy that when, at least Pesaitis, I think, maybe other Marxists say things like history, he'll spell it with, like, a capital H, and he's referring to like not not something like history, like uh, his history, his all the records from like whatever historians or like the, uh, the anthropological mm. record or like um, or archaeology or whatever, and like reconstructing an explanation of things that happened in the past. Like history with a capital H is kind of like a force within within material reality that is, I suppose, on some level, like. An, like an entity that has intentionality that is like going in a particular direction. And this actually, again, going back to Hegel, it comes from this idea of Hegel, what Hegel called the Geist, which is like, if, like we, we get the word zeitgeist. And again, it's like the spirit of the culture or whatever. And I didn't realize that like, 
well, maybe maybe I'm just an idiot or whatever, but like, like to them, well, that's you an actual. Did, answer, you like, did read almost two hundred pages of Juan Posadas, so I'd say we're, <laughs> both, we're both idiots. Like. It, it, like these sentences that he says, like I'll read you this one. Children must learn that history, capital H. So that history with the capital H is the history of the class struggle and that the classes behave as classes and not as individual persons. Indeed, it is the classes that speak through individual persons, end quote. Yeah. So like, so like these things, the classes. So you could, you know, coming from a STEM STEM background, you, you hear something like classes. Well, I heard classes and I thought like, okay, well, a class is like all these individual people have, you know, some uh, some property, say like the colour of their skin or how much money they make or whatever, <clears throat> and having that property makes them a member of a set, right? And so we'll call this set the class of like bourgeoisie people or something like that. Um, and... So the, the the class is like an aggregate of all the individuals. But in his conception, it, that's not the case. Like that's an incorrect interpretation of the word class. No, class is actually an autonomous, like it's an autonomous entity that has like existence independent of the individuals that are the aggregate and that it speaks through, somehow speaks through individual bodies. And so when they talk about, like the proletariat, they're not talking about the people, the population of people. They're talking about this like sort of disembodied thing that actually has an autonomous existence and it is actually fighting with this thing called imperialism and this other actual thing called like capitalism or whatever or the Mm -hmm. bourgeoisie. Um, And when somebody speaks, they literally mean like say I'm bourgeoisie and I'm speaking like they, the way they justify discrediting that person's point of view is that like I am just a mouthpiece for like say I'm talking on behalf I'm a bourgeoisie person and I'm trying to like defend capitalism or something. They say I'm just a mouthpiece that's speaking on behalf of like the bourgeoisie entity. Um, and I found that like incredibly like I think that's a correct interpretation. I might be wrong, but when that sort of penny dropped for me, I was like, oh, these guys are these people are insane. <laughs> like, <laughs> Completely ridiculous. Yeah, I think I, th- I think that's a, a, a what, nice what are your thing thoughts? in general. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. Whether am, am, I com- am I completely off base here, or or am I like? That's certainly how I've felt when I've I've talked to Marxists that I'm I'm regarded as an avatar or a, 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 an, an instance of yes. <laughs> A, a particular class. Abstract class white male <laughs> instance of factory. <laughs> abstract factory like, white male <laughs> dot create. It's like Jack. <laughs> it's like yeah, the, the object-oriented programmers of philosophy. <laughs> Spent too much time coding up stuff in Python. <laughs> so I and that's just absolutely baffling to me and it, and I think it all comes back to Hegel actually like because Hegel's the one so it's essentially again going back even further to Nietzsche like again we try not to do this too much but like Nietzsche basically in in short one of his criticisms of like what was going on was that with the death of God he said like God is dead and we have killed him and one of his concerns is that like okay, well, we're going to fill that void somehow and it's going to be the state that will fill the void. And uh, you know more about Nietzsche than me, so correct me if I'm wrong about this. But, like, there seems to be this kind of deistic 
tendency amongst humans to like look for an external thing that's like greater than us and say you could do it with theism or deism or you could do it with the Geist, as Hegel would say, or you could do it with quote-unquote history with a capital H, or you could do it with um, like the classes and the class struggle. Um, and there's this constant sense of like there's these things that are external to humanity and their objective and they have intentionality and they're acting through people on history. Yeah, yeah you, you, you certainly get a religious feeling from reading Pesaitis. Just that, I mean, for him, history or dialectical materialism effectively serve a theistic function. That's what they're these to me. Yeah, they're these immutable forces that exist independently of humans. Or yes, maybe in some sense with history, humans are the substrate within which they exist, but they yes. exert influence it's, upon humans. And let's let's be clear, like it's not as if Pesatus ever explains any of this. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> all, all of this is purely conjectural. <laughs> this, is, this is me trying to like cobble together like some semblance of, of like what the fuck this guy is talking about without yeah. having read any angles or marks. <laughs> so um, I promise, I promise the audience and I promise Jack, if we do another Marxist and we will do more Marxists because I want Marxism to be like a recurring category of the show. I want to read the little red book personally. I think that'd be a banger um, as in chairman Mao's little red book. Yeah. Um, yeah so like I'm going to go away and read Marx and angles, but to me, like if the audience, if you, if you don't know what we're talking about, I'm not entirely sure that we do either. I certainly don't. <laughs> it's incoherent. It, it is incoherent. It really is incoherent that uh, Pesaitis has thought. How about, how about his view of democracy? His Democracy is something he actually does define, and it's a fairly different definition to what I expect yeah, so he he talks about how we need democracy when when there is the revolution, when everything is centralized, when all economic decisions are planned, this needs to be done democratically. It cannot be done with technicians or experts. From my reading of it, he wants people to to effectively have direct democracy in deciding production targets, how you are going to meet production targets and things like that. Yeah. But the the way that the people will discuss what, what they want, both in terms of production targets and the type of political regime that they want to live under, that, that will be democratic, but it'll be Pesatist democratic. And in his view, free speech is good and you should have it, but free speech means the freedom to discuss things that are relevant. And for him, something is relevant basically if it leads to Pesatism. And... <laughs> 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 
<laughs> yeah. So I mean, something is relevant if you are discussing how to influence the economic context within which you live. And the economy must allow the masses to develop their lives in intelligence. But you can only develop your life and your intelligence via uh, state-owned property, workers' control, workers' councils, no private property. So pretty much socialism or communism. Yes. <laughs> this is a quote. The right for every person to think is not the hallmark of democracy by any means. To think, yes, but for what aim? In the name of what? If this is unspecified, democracy is an abstraction which serves the strongest. So you should speak freely, but only if you will reach the same conclusions as Poseidus. Yes. Yes. Um, the, th the interesting thing that I thought, and again, I don't really want to get into quote-unquote refutations per se. <laughs> this, is not the point. this is not the point of the show. But I, I, it just when when I was reading about the direct democracy stuff and like allocating resources and that sort of thing, I just thought like that, like that's what Isn't we that do. Is that what already happens? That's 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 how we do. Like that, that essentially, like if you're voting on your resources by spending money and telling the economy where to allocate resources through transactions, that's essentially like achieves the same goal, but. Of course, then you would have to have private property rights, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and uh, we can't have that. So somehow you've got to have like an efficient allocation of resources amongst an entire population who are all going to vote on everything and discuss everything, and nobody has private property. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and he's and this is one of the other. This leads us to one of the other points. The guy really hates. Not really hates it. No, he really hates private property. Hates private like yeah. oh, yeah. no private oh, yeah. property. Complete, complete ban on private property. Okay, he also has a dislike for because he's a Trotskyite, right? He also dislikes um like the Soviet Union insofar as like it's a giant uh like bureaucracy, I suppose. So he always talks, he always like talks crap. Sometimes he'll he'll like criticize capitalism and in the same sentence like criticize the bureaucracy of the Soviet state, for example. Yeah. Um, and then, and then like two sentences later, he'll talk about, oh, well, we're, we're going to have to like have, you know, like councils or Soviets, like councils and vote on everything and like have these structures. And I'm just like, how is that not the most bureaucratic way that you could possibly <laughs> structure? Like we have to have councils on councils on councils on everything and we all have to discuss every single thing together and then have direct democracy and somehow we're going to get things done. Yeah, look, I, 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 think, I think you're you're looking at his language in the wrong way. You should take <laughs> yes, bureaucracy yes, to just please. be, yeah, Bureaucracy is just a negatively valenced term. <laughs> <laughs> a Soviet organ or a Soviet organism is a positively valenced term for the same thing. <laughs> yes. I, so I, 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 I think to a large extent they refer to the same thing. It's just when he talks about bureaucracy, you know that he doesn't like it. 
Yeah, and well, of course, if it's something to do with Stalin, then yeah, <laughs> or the or the, or the one bad. the one country the one country revolution, then it's a bureaucracy. But if it's a glo- yeah. global nuclear holocaust that leads to a bunch of councils, <laughs> then it's it, that it's a, then it's a communist organism. <laughs> oh, so I, do, I I I found a really good quote about um yeah go about on. democracy. Yeah, the workers' state, the proletariat gives to each the possibility to write, to speak, and to say anything necessary, anything but what is in contradiction, in opposition with the interests of the workers' state. This is democracy. (laughs) (laughs) It's literally not democracy. It's literally not democracy. (laughs) It's democracy in that you can say what the state wants you to say. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I just found a really good bit in my notes. Do you remember the bit where he was talking about abstract art? No, I don't remember that. Or have have, have you just suppressed that memory? Yeah, maybe I didn't get up to it. Look, he doesn't like surrealism, doesn't like cubism, (laughs) doesn't like them. Uh, And his his disagreement is not aesthetic. It's it's something more profound. Uh, Oh, God. (laughs) I must have missed this bit. Well, so the reason why people will will paint in a cubist style or a surrealist style is because, well, when 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 they're doing it in good faith, I should I should add, is because they live in a world <laughs> where there isn't there there doesn't exist a way for them to rectify the problems of capitalism or to rectify social or political problems or economic problems that they see around them. In that context, it's okay to be a surrealist because you're painting to escape the world, to find joy somewhere else. He's big on joy. He talks about the need to find joy quite quite yeah. often. But you know, he's now a happy-go-lucky that, fella. Now that not merely not merely does communism exist now, but Poseidism exists, right? There, there are workers' states, and there is one Poseidus theorizing and in that context it's it's really not acceptable to paint something other than socialist reality because before they were trying to escape the world to find something joyous but now there is something joyous there is Poseidism and the fact that they're painting cubist shit and not Poseidist stuff that's that that's degeneracy I'm pretty sure he yes. actually does use the term degeneracy. Yeah, yeah, he calls it degenerate. <laughs> um, yeah, again, just I, I just think that he didn't go far enough. <laughs> he should have been. What would you He should have been calling for all art to be depictions of Poseidus Utopia. I'm pretty sure that was what he was calling for. <laughs> I think he just accurately conveyed one of the saddest thoughts. <laughs> you thought you were joking. <laughs> you were just being accurate. Hey, um, should we move on to um, flying saucers? Yeah, yeah, let's move on to flying saucers because <laughs> this is a good oh, man, one. The rest, of, the, the, the rest of this particular speech was just so... Boring. It's mostly stuff that we've just like. It's just him saying over and over again that the Soviet bureaucracy sucks. 
America sucks. We need to nuke everything and start again. Imperialism sucks. Capitalism sucks. There was a good bit at the end, actually, where he talks about, um, (laughs) this is the quote, our ideas and our energy are inexhaustible, although we lack in the financial means to give them their full expression. He just starts asking for cash. (laughs) Link to Poseidus' Patreon in the description. (laughs) (laughs) Bitcoin address. We should, we should do that. We should start a start a Poseidus revival Patreon or something. Funnel all the money to my ETH purchases. <laughs> Just buy NFTs, buy commie NFTs. Um, yeah, no, he. Uh, it's funny that like organizing the proletariat. If it's such an effective means for running a society, why do you need to ask for money <laughs> to, to, to get it off the well, ground, this is, mate? <laughs> this is something that he. I mean, when I this is almost like like theology in that you're trying to explain something that he has said previously using something else somewhat related that he has he has written later in a text um, because he didn't bother explaining himself at all, hence why we are performing the Poseidus exegesis that we are at the moment. I think that might be <laughs> a an acknowledgement of how fallen our current world is. So he, he talked about how so socialism <laughs> in one country can't work because you need to trade and capitalism is corrupted. If, if your country is socialist but capitalism is corrupted, all the countries around it, you will need to trade with them using some form of private property. Yes. That someone somewhere in that transaction is going to have to own something. So uh, so you can't have socialism in one country. And in the same way, I see this as my theological analysis as similar to when he, he asks for money because he doesn't want to own private property, uh, but he's acknowledging yeah. that when you exist he's within a capitalist himself. context as he does, he yeah, to, he, yeah. he still needs some cash. He still needs some cash money. Yeah. Yeah. No. Luckily, like, when you, when you have a perfect functioning socialist society, you don't have to have a medium of exchange because everybody will just voluntarily do stuff for the greater good, as we know. Like, obviously, it's a, it's a given. This yeah, well, reading, reading, reading this after the fall of the Soviet Union as well is. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess so. I guess it makes it somewhat harder to take seriously. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point. Like, I suppose when he was writing, oh, but then again, so he was writing in the 70s, 60s, and 70s, right? So interesting. Man, last century sucked, didn't it? Far out. <laughs> it was. It was Pretty shit. <laughs> Jesus. Um, okay, flying sources. Let's do it. You want to go to flying sources? Yeah, let's get this. I'm gonna pull it. No, you go. You, do you want to give an introduction to the text? And I'll. I'm just gonna pull up one. Yeah. Time. Okay. So this 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 one was called Flying Sources: The Process of Matter and Energy, Science and Socialism. He wrote it in 1968. It really is about what it says on the tin. It's about communist aliens yeah and straight out the gate in, in okay just, 
<laughs> this is how much he this is how much he thinks of the Soviet Union. Straight out of the gate, second paragraph, opening sentence, it just says, in the Soviet Union, studies are being conducted on the possibility of surpassing the speed of light. This ability may have been acquired on other planets several millions of years ago and be already being used. Um, and he basically goes on to say that like if you can acquire like fast and speed of light travel. You can only have gotten there through communism. <laughs> yeah. The, the, I think you just summed up the entirety of this article. It's basically... If he, there's aliens, they're, they're going to be commies. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird because he veers between hedging and saying, look, I'm not saying there are aliens, but some pretty credible people have said there are aliens and have met them. <laughs> and then sometimes been, just says there are aliens. There's been a lot of sightings. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's and, been a yeah, lot of to, sightings. We can't take them all seriously, but it's like, well, come on, at least a couple of them are <laughs> 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 serious. <laughs> yeah, but every now and then he'll just say there are there are aliens. I mean, anyway, I so <laughs> <laughs> that'd be pretty cool. But he, yeah, and as you said the only way that they could reach the level of technological advancement to you know, make their flying sources and come reach us is if they were communists. That and they're peaceful. They're, they're peaceful because he talks about how yes. people who yeah, have yeah. met aliens are always overcome with this feeling of serenity and that means they're not, they're, they're not hostile, which means that they can't be capitalists which means that they have to be communists. Yes. And, and as I think we discussed uh, earlier, um, like in order for science to progress, right, to the, the zenith of what science is capable of achieving, you can't do that under a capitalist system with private property and the egoism that private property uh induces in the scientists who are actually doing the science, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so in order to like achieve these great things such as like fast and speed of light travel obviously we need to get rid of the corrupting force of private property <laughs> so oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and and, and the aliens like, have done that already uh, and yes yeah, so obviously again like a sufficiently advanced <laughs> the, 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 the reasoning is essentially any sufficiently advanced um society must necessarily be communist in order to have achieved that level of technological sophistication which, which is pretty funny, like, in hindsight, you just think, like, well, the Soviet Union got pretty good at making film-based cameras, I suppose, and, like, making a couple of rockets. But like, it's sort of, like, kind of the opposite happened. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Again, what, what about the, no more there's, there's, there's this quote here um, where he's talking about a Japanese scientist who says that we shouldn't waste the energy of earthquakes. And I really liked this quote because it combines Poseidus' love of... I mean, he, he was very optimistic about technology. So his, his technological optimism combined with his more messianic impulses. So... The Japanese scholar also said that we can predict, contain, deviate, and indeed make use of this energy, as an aside, the energy contained within earthquakes. The Poseidists said the same thing at the time of the 1961 Chilean earthquake, and I really like this quote because it's it's like, if you Chileans had just listened to me, Juan Poseidus, (laughs) 
you wouldn't have been destroyed by this earthquake. You would have harnessed it. You would have benefited, no. but you ignored the Pesadist International. You'd be in uh, only, energy surplus right now. If only you'd listen to Juan. If only they just listened to Juan. <laughs> what about that bit about um, about human lifespans? But he 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 every now and then does say things that are just factually wrong. Yes. Like, you know, like 170, it, humans have been known to live to 160, but on average... Yeah, the, like the, the quote. <laughs> the longest human lifespan is reported to be 160 years. So not that, <laughs> not that I'm aware of. Probably not. <laughs> no. And then, and then his stuff about time. He, he, he started talking about how time is a, a capitalist construct. Um, yeah, in order to, like, check in... You know, you know, check in, check out of work, have deadlines. I mean, I hate deadlines as well, right? So I'm kind of hmm. on board. <laughs> but he 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 talked about how maybe I'm a pesadist. <laughs> he talked about how there are some non-arbitrary divisions of time. So say weather and seasons. Those aren't arbitrary, those aren't just manifestations of a, a like malevolent class, the capitalists. But apart from those, time has no significance. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you think, yeah, but what about the time of day? There, there, yeah. like there, there is a material difference between 12 noon and 12 midnight. Yes. Look, I, I think, don't think that's arbitrary because I, I can't see in one of them. Jack, I think the problem here is that you're disagreeing with one and you should stop that. Well, yeah, I should I should be more democratic and exercise my free speech <laughs> to agree with one Pesadas. You're not being you're but being you're, you're not being democratic enough right now. <laughs> I'm being insufficiently democratic. But then aliens, because they are advanced and they are democratic and, and they, they are democratic. <laughs> democratic they, aliens. they have they don't have our illusions about time. So he says regarding aliens. Why should they have deadlines and billings, debts to pay by due dates, or the need for heart transplants? Yeah. <laughs> and he kept bringing up heart transplants <laughs> in this particular article as being, yeah, just as being evidence of capitalist decay because he says, look, if we were communist and had all of the technological advancements that came with that, never have all we wouldn't failure. even need hearts. <laughs> I mean, so hearts. a heart transplant And we certainly wouldn't is, need doctors. Yeah, it's, it's a symbol of capitalist decadence. He, he's not a big fan of heart transplants. He then calls upon aliens to come to Earth and help us, help overthrow yeah. capitalism. And when he says that, I don't know what he means because if you take that in the context only of this article, then you would think, well, maybe they'll give us some sort of knowledge and teach us how not to be capitalist. If you take it within the context of his broader body of work, I just think of them as firing nukes from orbit. But that, my impression of... That makes aliens, sense. I mean, you can have yeah, both, so right? How, like, how, how would you view it? Do you think <laughs> when he's calling for aliens to come and help us, he means they can come and teach us how to do all of the cool stuff that they can do or they're going to come and woke the shit out of us? Well, I think one of the cool things that aliens can do is nuke the shit out of humanity. 
Yeah. Which yeah, is a very yeah. communist thing to do. So, like, I, I think that's one of the many things in the, in the, the repertoire of alien technology. Human annihilation is one of the things that can be accomplished, which is in line with communism. Uh, well, sorry, apocalyptic, persadist communism, the true communism. Yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> here's a good quote. I found a quote about um, the scientific applications or the technological applications of Marxism. He says that with hardly any previous knowledge or preparation, a person scientifically equipped with Marxism and the dialectics can tackle any problem in any specialty. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You hear that? <clears throat> You're studying wrong. Any problem. Yeah, well, this is the stuff I was talking about earlier about the dialectic, the Hegelian dialectic. Um, with the synthesis antithesis, antithesis, <laughs> antithesis, and um, and synthesis, and he means it. Uh, I've actually got a quote on that. He says, uh, "Matters of extraterrestrials and flying saucers do not put the dialectical methods in any doubt whatsoever. Indeed, they confirm it. The dialectical method gets reconfirmed at every turn." So even he's like, "Yeah, the fucking aliens will be on board with the dialectic, mate." Like, come on. How could you possibly achieve faster than speed of light? They are on board, yeah. Yeah. And you can't achieve faster than speed of light board, they couldn't without, without a dialectic. So um yeah. Oh, so um basically he's he's uh he's basically pro-UFO, which I'm I'm pro-UFO. Um yeah. and that's and a the point of way we can and the only way that we can get there is through um communism. So you want to move on to childbearing in space agree, or the function of wholeheartedly? Yeah, you're that childbearing in space. Or do you want to talk about the function of joke in history? Because that was that was a pretty good one. Uh, let me see. You want to talk about jokes or childbearing in space? Um, well, does it, how much is there to talk about with childbearing in space? That adds to the UFO stuff. Not much. I mean, it, it it's more of his love of the cosmos, how he talks about how the Soviets are experimenting with childbearing in space. And this is an example of the, the confidence of communism and the fact that capitalists aren't making people give birth in space is a sign of capitalist decay. Why don't you quickly explain that? We don't have to spend a long time on this one. Just explain that point and maybe we'll, we can have a quick chat about it. Yeah. Well, how about I give you this quote, which sums up a lot of this article. The Soviets are setting out to experiment with the gestation of a child in space. This could be one of the forms that love will take in the future. So this is this is classic Pesavis. Pretty mystifying, not much explanation going on, but very sci-fi. Yeah, I think that's where, again, I agree with him. Like, childbearing in space, definitely something to think about. He's very sci-fi, very sci-fi. Mm -hmm. I, I can't find any point of contention with this essay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what else does he talk about it here? He talks about how in the future we, we have economic systems at the moment that are mismanaged because they're managed through competition you know, on the basis of private property, which just leads to 
chaos. Once you centralize everything and eliminate private property and have monopolies, prices come down inexorably. Yes. And yeah, he yep. says in in the future, I mean, the these economics that you will be relying upon to, to centralize everything, they're dependent upon mathematics and programs and electronic brains that are only getting more advanced. So things are just going to keep getting better so long as we centralize. Yeah, yeah. How about we talk about the function of the joke in history? Because that is a bit different. And that's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty weird. <laughs> yep. So why won't we be making jokes in the future? Well, because as far as I can tell, it's because the only reason to make a joke is if you're not joyous. And obviously in a communist society, yep. everyone will be joyous all the time. So mm-hmm. there'll be no need to tell jokes, you know, as like forms of like criticism or dissent or like making your situation more joyous than it currently is everything will just be perfect so there'll be no need for jokes and yeah am i misrepresenting his point of view <laughs> it, it was a bit hard to <laughs> it's a bit hard to pass so this was written in 1976 the function of the joke yep. in history in this article he says that jokes will disappear in 20 to 30 years so we we're actually being completely sincere. I have no sense of irony, and I cannot even conceive of irony, because we yes. are, we, we we are in a post-joke world. He he starts this by saying that social relations are the most important thing in society and for humanity, um, and that a joke seeks to elevate an insufficient social relation. And that once the relation is sufficient and under communism it will be sufficient, then jokes will not be necessary because you won't need to elevate an insufficient social relation. I didn't really understand that. Well, okay, so, like, this is what I was saying about the importance of social relations. Oh, there's, there's, I've got some quotes from, like, um, earlier. Uh, this is from Flying Sources. Okay, so basically... Uh, he has this quote that says, it is social organisation that determines the scientific capacity of human beings. In the socialist society, socialist social capability will be unlimited. So he has this, like, syllogism oh. that basically goes social relations, so, like, how people relate to one another, uh, leads to pr- producing certain human capacities and capabilities, and those define the limits of, like, understanding and how people interact. Um, <clears throat> so... For example, to quote, again, from Flying Sources, the possession of riches is a distortion in the social organisation of human sentiment. The human sentiment is fraternal and collective, but the possession of wealth causes degeneration in it. The bourgeoisie class can have neither the inclination nor the perspective to develop society objectively in that they are corrupted by this this social relation of private property. Um, uh, oh, there's um. Okay, so and then here's a here's a quote from Childbearing Space, and I'll get up to the, get all the way up to the function of joking history and tick. Um, the consciousness of humanity could only reach this this peak, the peak of like uh, Childbearing Space, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because the proletariat is the class, the only class in history that can think as humankind. 
the historic future of the proletariat is not as a proletariat, but as humankind. The proletariat can only develop further as a class by disappearing as a class, such is the permanent resolution, capital P, capital R, uh, today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In fulfilling the superior phase of its development, the proletariat must disappear, which is the construction of the new society. Observe how the proletariat grows in the disposition to think in the name of humanity and not just as a class. This is what it started when we started building the Soviet Union. So when he's talking about like, like joy is not a state of spirit, but a conception of human relations, he's talking in this backdrop of like everything like absolutely everything is determined by like how humans relate to one another. Like, like all the way back in the other, the other texts, like how science is conducted and whether or not we can achieve like full scientific capacities and all all of those things is a (laughs) consequence of how humans relate to one another. Are they doing it through like fraternal and collective spirits or are they doing it through private property and the degradation of the human spirit? (laughs) So this is why, from 2006 onwards, jokes and irony have not existed. Yes, because we have transcended private property. Nice. I don't yeah. think we have any more who had. Does that make any sense at all? Or No. <laughs> not to me, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, considering that at the moment, most memory of Juan Besaitis is in the form of memes. Like he, he is mostly a meme <laughs> at this stage. And memes are nothing if not ironic. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I've got to look up a Juan Pesada's meme. Yeah, yeah. The function of okay. the joke in history. Okay, and that's why maybe we should, anyways, we didn't, maybe we did or maybe we didn't explain it well enough earlier, but like social relations. And it's it's from Marxism in general is like a really important concept, and it, it again if we if you want to move on, to, oh wait, um, yeah, uh, he had this nice quote on fashion in in the function of the joke and irony in history. Um, he says the tie is a residue. I really I actually really like this quote. <laughs> the tie, as in the necktie, is a residue of the capitalist regime. It expresses no capacity, but the relations imposed. The solemnity, yeah, solemnity of capitalism. It is absurd. A meeting of communists with a meeting of communists with a tie. So communists don't need ties. None of that. Because we only wear ties because we're operating this hegemonic capitalist system where we have to wear these fucking ties. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. How about quickly we go over the relationship with the animals and socialism from 1978? There are a few nuggets of of gold in that one. Uh, Yes. The basic, basic premise is that under socialism, not only will there be no more animal exploitation, but humans will... Here we go. The quote. In due course, humanity will be making an experience of life so rich that even wild animals will stop being wild. He talks about how once, <laughs> once, we've, once we've got socialism, more animals will become tame. There are oh, some animals that won't <laughs> become tame and some that will go extinct. He says that rhinos and giraffes will probably go extinct. I don't know why those two specifically aren't, aren't cut out for socialism, but if you want to see a rhinoceros or a giraffe 
better do it quickly. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't explain. He doesn't he explain. Just drops that and he then, just, then leaves. He, he, just, he just picked, and then, he, he then later says, like, well, elephants are really intelligent and, like, they're probably going to survive. It's like, okay, so of these three famous, like, African animals, savannah animals, like, we've got rhinos, they're, they're out, giraffes, they're out, they're elephants, get them. We've got elephants, they're good. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Why? I don't know. <laughs> well, he, well, it's part of well, elephants are intelligent, right? That was his yeah. justification. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> maybe it's that. He and, and then he, he talks about how we we will be able to communicate much better with one another under communism because the social relations will be improved. <laughs> and that, that will extend to animals. So he says when the intelligence of communist society is established. It will beam outwards in all directions and towards all the animals. So, like the reason, like this is like electromagnetic you, radiation, like just emanating yeah. out from the communist utopia into the animals. I mean, the reason, the only reason that I cannot talk to a German shepherd at the moment is because we do not live in a in a communist state. Yeah, which, which makes, once that happens, then yeah, which makes sense, and. Once we have removed the barrier of private property, then you can finally talk to your cat. Not mm. to a rhinoceros, though. There. Look, I'm pretty on board with this vision of the future. <laughs> this sounds pretty good. This is pretty good. He, um, unfortunately, so he did continue this thread of talking to animals in the later stages of his life. He got really into sort of, in 1980 or so, he got really into the the thought of Igor Tchaikovsky, who was a a Russian was midwife, was who um who was really into water birth guy. and and believed that if you gave birth in water, the baby will be much healthier and will be able to talk to dolphins, which is I mean self evidently positive true and beneficial to the to the global communist revolution unfortunately Pesetas yes. didn't live he, he didn't live much longer you know having discovered these ideas he died in 1981 so I'm assuming the only reason why I'm not sure why communication with dolphins is necessary for revolution is because Pesetas didn't have long enough to develop this this line of thought such a shame, man. I know. The things humanity has lost. What have we lost? He, um, Truly. he does, he a did write. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote in 1980 an article called A Baby is Born in the Water, uh, which was posthumously published in 1984. But I'm, I think it's in French. And I don't speak French, so it's. Uh, <laughs> if any listeners really want to learn about why water birth is a good thing, and yeah, translate it, go just go for it. Tell us what it's like. Translate it, send it I, to us. I would actually quite like to know because because the, the problem is, the problem is it's an article, it's it's a scan of a newspaper article, so I can't just feed it into Google Translate or something like that. Otherwise, I would have, but. I mean, I suppose I could type it out, but I can't. Be bothered. No, I don't want to learn. Don't, don't I don't want to learn the secrets of water birth that badly. <laughs> um, I've got. Uh, let me see. What? Uh, 
Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I I had this point about that was interesting. That kind of again comes up again and again. It's it's what it's. I think I said it earlier in the episode, which is like Marxists, and it's not just Marxists, but um, let's take Marxists in particular um, for now because we're talking about Marxists. Um, tend to like view like things like humanity or history as these autonomous entities or to some extent if they're not autonomous entities that have their own inherent existence and and like intentionality at, at the very least humanity is a homogenous thing that you can talk about and so he has this quote um we went to educate ourselves to the zoo. So we went to a zoo, that's why I was writing this article. Um, we went to educate ourselves for the task that consists in helping to harmonise the human being, the animal and life as part of nature and the cosmos. Humanity already strives towards this aim. Humanity longs for the harmony that unites all the forms of life as part of the organisation of nature in the interests of all. So I just had a note that like Pesaitis, but also other Marxists, uh, for some unexplained and assumed reason, like they assume that they are the person who is able to know, assert and communicate the aims of humanity or of history or of the proletariat or whatever it is. You know, it's it's kind of like, I just get this sense that like it's it's like elevating in this case Pesaitis to the level of priest. For some reason, he knows what the goal of humanity is, and we just have to like take his word for it because for whatever he's 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 engaged in the Hegelian dialectic um, to like come up with these objective facts about history. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That was just one of my notes that I had. Just for I think some being unfair. Explain reason they can always speak on behalf. Yes, I probably am being unfair and undemocratic. Yeah, here. because <laughs> if you let people, if you let people discuss things democratically, and I'm talking democratically, they will reach exactly <laughs> the same conclusions as Juan Pesaitis. Oh, and then um, he had this uh, another interesting part. It's just like again. Uh, just another thing that you get when you read Marxist stuff um, is that, like, there's always the view, you're always viewing everything through, like, the class construct. So there's another quote he had, humanity is the ruling class. The ruling class drills its own concepts into humanity. In our behaviour towards the animals, what you see is the power relations of the humans towards each other. Um, our relationships with the animals will be in the future. Um, our relationships with... The animals will be based on the appreciation of our common origins. The animals stayed. Oh no! Anyway, so I won't read the rest of that. It's not relevant. Yeah, <laughs> basically, like <laughs> no, no. I just realized, like halfway through the quote, that I was like, oh no, wait, that's not making the point that I'm trying to make. Anyway, like every every <laughs> every everything is like uh, everything is viewed through yeah the lens of social relations and classes and stuff, and even this interaction with other animals and i guess like on some level i can understand what he's talking about like you're going to a zoo and you're seeing all these like animals locked in cages or whatever um yeah anyways yeah i'd feel bad for all the for for all the animals except the rhinos and the giraffes they fucking deserve it 
Yeah, fuck them. Fuck them. They're not going to survive. <laughs> They're not going to be um, elevated like every other animal. I reckon that's... Oh, that's, okay. That's so, wait. wait. That's, it, it, that, that, no, that's just one more ratings. One more exit to private property just to drive home that we dislike oh, private property. Yeah, yeah. With this visit to the zoo, we sought to be preoccupied with the question of where humanity comes from and this in order to know where better humanity is going. The obstacle in the way is knowing better of knowing better is private property for humanity to know where it comes from and where it goes. It must end private property. There we go. Nice. Nice. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's one to say it is. It. Um, <laughs> how about this? I'm, let's, I'm let's sorry. We up. have subjected, subjected you to this, this person's well-being for the last hour and a half. We have to fucking read it. Listeners can't complain. <laughs> I just don't even know what to say. Like, I guess you read more read more than me, you poor son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> what did you I read like, a lot of did... red flag articles. So on um oh, God. Yeah, the uh there's a collection of um of scans of I think it's red flag, an English language Poseidus newspaper i read quite a few of those articles there are some pretty funny ones there's one where he accuses the castro regime of having che guevara killed that was pretty good there was one where they talk about how the pentagon ordered kennedy assassinated that was pretty good um they've got a lot of pretty wacky stuff it's just it's it's a shitload of stuff to read i'm pretty sick of reading one what? Poseidus. What have you taken away from this this journey through Juan? Uh, honestly, my main thing is that it's really boring. He made nuclear war boring. <laughs> that, 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 he, that is my he made main takeaway. It's really boring. He must have been like charismatic in person or something. Because these were all speeches yeah, as well, so yeah. I have nothing to say about Juan Posadas. Do you reckon he was a troll? So, how about how about <laughs> in terms of is was he a troll? No, of course not. But we, the guy's dead serious. <laughs> um, he and his his life was endangered for his beliefs as well. Right? There were some Posadists in Latin America who were killed. Yep, for for being communists, but this this guy believed what he was saying. Mm-hmm. I think a more interesting question is: Are Persadists today trolls? And that's way more unclear. With with, with people talking about Persadists today, I would say the majority are trolls because this this guy's ideas are are pretty wacky and. If you if you go over the abridged version, if you hear the abridged version of his thought, it's it's funny to talk about. If you actually read what he wrote or the, the transcripts of what he said in speeches, it's mostly boring. But it's good meme material. Just say like the that that Trotskyite who was into nuclear war aliens and talking to dolphins. That's that's good. That's good meme material. That's good meme. That's good keck. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. 
So, so he Poseidus, was, not a troll. Poseidists yeah. today, or people who talk about it online, Modern Poseidus. Most probably of them are trolls. trolls. Probably, probably trolls. trolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. In well, terms of what what would you rate the book? Oh, the book, the I'm collection of articles that we read out of the anthology. <laughs> oh God, I you know like on the previous two, I joked a bit. And, you know, I just like fuck this guy. I have no interest. I have no interest in like being charitable towards one. No, this guy's garbage. <laughs> Yeah, I'd give this I'd a rate two. Him, I'd rate him Democratic out of ten. <laughs> democratic out of ten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would give him two enforced Democratic opinions out of ten. <laughs> he, I was not convinced whatsoever. It was fucking boring. Uh, and he's, the, he's a reactionary. The, piece the of wackiness, shit. the wackiness was just didn't redeem. How dull it was! Yeah, 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 yeah. Not recommended. You, you could have cut out eighty percent of the words and just kept the, the zany stuff, and it would, it would be, it would have been fun. Um, yeah, but no, but it wasn't. Um, would would you uh do you, do you agree with his vision of the world? Uh I mean, yeah. Why why not have a nuclear war? Yeah, so I think that's the, the default thing. About the it. default position <laughs> is nuclear war. It, you need to convince <laughs> me as to why we shouldn't have one. <laughs> See, Talking to dolphins, my, that'd be pretty good. Being able to like divide into two jacks that are half the size. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> D- yeah. Division, yeah, yeah. I'm on board that's with a lot cool. of his like proposals. Faster than really. light travel. That's cool. There's a Tick, lot of cool that's stuff. Pretty cool. Being able to live for a million years can get on board with that. Yeah, that's the cool. complete abolition of all private property. I definitely am on board. And with the that. abolition <laughs> of deadlines and paying bills on time that that is good. That's that's good. Stuff. Yeah, that's good. And getting rid of ties, neckties can get rid no of neckties. That's fine yeah. as well. No ties, no ties, no deadlines. Live for a million years. Anyway, Juan Posadas highly recommended. Everyone should read everything that he's ever written. <laughs> we're founding. We're, yeah, we're, we're convening a meeting, a meeting of the Poseidus. We're going to have the as we speak. This is the fourth international, fifth international, the Neo Poseidus with with the Neo Poseidus fourth with, international with Jack and Levi. We should go to Argentina <laughs> and try and start a fifth fifth international. I think we'd probably get killed. Hey, <laughs> look, if it means I can form a sex cult, then give it a try. Yep, so fun. Tune in for next episode. Next episode's gonna be an interesting one on um Varg. (laughs) (laughs) Get excited. (laughs) I expect everyone to to listen to a bit of black metal, play a bit of Mifarog, get in touch with their Nordic heritage, whether it exists or not. We'll talk to you you next time about Varg. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.